I've knocked around a bit now, and as the UK reacted to the spread of the new pandemic, my thoughts turned to the last generational public health crisis. During that middle five years of the 80s, all one was dealing with was death and trying to do something about it. Like coronavirus, in the mid-80s, HIV and AIDS had no cure. All that could be done was to stop its spread. It was a life and death brief. You have life, this is death, it come and visit you. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, the lessons from a past pandemic. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. There is now a danger that has become a threat to us all. In the 1980s, I was a young television journalist, and the message from the government couldn't have been clearer. It is a deadly disease and there is no known cure. A series of ads played on national television on billboards and hoardings, and this one stood out. So far it's been confined to small groups, but it's spreading. So protect yourself. There's a volcano, and in the wake of its eruption, a mighty hand chisels a message on a dark slate monolith. It could be a gravestone. A voice, known in almost every household, imparts the news of a deadly disease. If you ignore AIDS, it could be the death of you. So don't die of ignorance. If you ignore AIDS, it could be the death of you. So don't die of ignorance. The ad finished with a plea to read the information leaflet the government was sending to every house in the country. By then, I knew people who'd died of AIDS, but many others didn't and I saw people being shocked out of their complacency. Hi, I'm Nam. I'm a GP and the clinical lead for the NHS website. The NHS website has advice on how long to stay at home and what to do if you live with a vulnerable person. If you have these symptoms, stay at home for seven days. A high temperature, you feel hot to touch on your chest or back. At this moment of national emergency, to stay at home, protect our NHS, and save lives. On Monday, weeks into the coronavirus outbreak, 
Boris Johnson gave the nation its starkest health warning since the 80s. But the government's messages about coronavirus haven't always been so clear. Should we be practising social distancing or staying at home? Can you be socially distant in a park or a supermarket? After what feels like a month of prevarication, now we do have a clear message. Stay at home. But the question is this, will the country listen? Are we scared enough? Is this warning dire enough, visceral enough for us to put our normal lives on a pause and save others from the consequence of the virus? My name is Malcolm Gaskin. I've worked on uh, a lot of government programmes, especially the AIDS campaign in the 80s. My advertising agency at the time, we were doing a lot of work for the Central Office of Information. Main reason is government needed a a close-knit team that they trusted to get on with work quickly and produce work that would be truthful to the government's stance on whatever was happening. Do you remember how you began to think about the campaign that you might need? People knew about a year before actually we went public that something was happening to various groups around the world that were unexplained in places like San Francisco and other places. They knew it was a, a killer disease with no knowledge of what it was and how it was happening. By the time we did the Don't Die of Ignorance campaign, the government had to go public and say this is happening and it could happen to a wider public as well. The thing about us gays is all we've got politically or socially is visibility. So one of the interesting things about lifting illegality is that you are literally able to be visible. Simon Fanshaw is one of the founders of the charity Stonewall. He lived through the AIDS crisis of the 1980s after coming out in the late 70s. So what you find between sort of 67, really, and up to the early 80s, that 15-year period, one of the things is the development of the various different kinds of networks, so all the gay rambling clubs and lesbian and gay switchboard and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Do you remember how AIDS first made itself impinged upon your consciousness? I absolutely remember the day... I was madly in love with an absolutely adorable straight man um, who was, uh, he, he was sort of in love with me, I think, in some way. It was a real bromance, you know? He was a scientist. And I went round one day for supper and he met me at the door and he looked absolutely shocked. And I barely crossed the threshold when he told me that he'd read this article in The New Scientist about this thing called GRID, it was called. Gay-Related Immune Deficiency was the acronym at that point. Wow. And it was a gay cancer, was sort of the, the, that was the sort of terminology. One's reaction is a combination of denial and terror, really. The idea that a disease would target a particular group of people seemed kind of incredible and frightening. I mean, that was probably 82, 83, I suspect. So during that first, that middle five years of the 80s, all one was dealing with was death and trying to do something about it. And then, of course, there was contradictory advice constantly about forms of sex, you know, was oral sex, you know, risky, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, these were debates one had to have with people.
had gay friends at the time who died as well. And in their community, it was they didn't know what was going on. And it was a, quite a topic of conversation around the bars and clubs. People were scared, bewildered, panicking. But they weren't changing what they were up to because they didn't know what to change to. I mentioned the discussions about particular sexual activities and whether or not they were risky. As it happened... I wasn't particularly involved in sexual activity. It was deemed high risk, but I was scared. What did you think about the level of, if you like, public conversation before your campaign was commissioned and started? It was debilitating for victims who happened to be gay that the public knew. It was a lot of public voyeurism about who's going to be the next person. Is this a way you can identify people? All the people who are losing weight, who are flamboyant, have they got it? It was only when the government and our government and other governments decided to say it's a disease that it could be you, it could be your son, your daughter, uh, your baby. And uh, the original purience was squashed by, you know, a very heavy hand, but needed government public information. I don't think that the stigma around AIDS has ever really left Gay men. There's still an idea that it was started by us. It was our fault. Whoever else got it, we started it. How did you go about deciding how to pitch the message? Because those of us who were around at the time remember it as being possibly the most in-your-face, clear public health information campaign of our lifetimes. Well, it was a life and death brief. Uh, you have life, this is death, it'll come and visit you unless you take precautions and there's no escaping it. It's all encompassing. And unlike coronavirus now, it was complacency with the general public and we had to be as big and as strong and as scary to grab people's attention. At the moment, coronavirus, people have got the attention but they may be confused or bewildered by what to do. You had to get people to change their behaviour. What did you tell people to do? Be armed with the only sword of strength they could have, and that was information. The idea was that this was the tip of something much, much bigger, and that there may only be a few people, but actually this was a threat to everybody. And in a peculiar way, I suppose that was, I was going to say, comforting. <laughs> I know it's an odd thing to say, but it was the government is taking this seriously. And that actually sort of was the moment when it began to matter. What about the John Hurt voice and the slogan, don't die of ignorance? They're incredibly powerful. Well, don't die of ignorance. I mean, it seems to me to be something that everybody should have on a sampler and hung in their kitchen. You know, this is a good thing, you know, and it was powerful. And of course, then when people in your family were affected or whatever, it meant that you had some idea of what this was about. Did you feel that the advice that was contained in the leaflets, not so much in the TV campaign, was clear enough about what people should do? There was quite a lot of advice that came to the gay community, which was extremely explicit. And that's valuable because it didn't mince its words. It didn't, you know, pull its punches. It really, you know, used the F word and so on and so forth. And that makes sense because that's the language people talk in. They did talk about sexual habits. There was no sort of euphemism. People went for it and said, look, this is dangerous. That's not. Do this. Don't do that. Blah, blah, blah. You will get X if you do Y. 
Over the weekend, pictures emerged from a market in East London packed with people ignoring the government's social distancing advice. What I think was interesting, though, and you can see it now with the picture in the paper, Columbia Road Market, packed with people ignoring advice. There were gay people who took the advice incredibly seriously and became really careful. And then there were people who just didn't and were insouciant about it, in a sense. So I can see why people were defiant about that and saying, you know, I'm out now and I'm going to continue to be out. It's interesting, the parallel that you draw, which is, that as far as we can tell, quite a lot of the people who are most resistant to the messaging now are young men who may very well be saying to themselves, it's all very well for these oldies and crumblies to stay at home, but I'm a young guy. I think there's a sort of, there's a bloody British thing about I won't be told what to do. The thing here which is peculiar is that you can infect somebody without knowing it. The point about AIDS was it wasn't easy to get AIDS. You had to do something pretty specific to get AIDS. So it's a different idea in terms of the transmission. But to start with, people thought they could get it by being in contact with people who had AIDS, which is the same as COVID-19. So that's, that reinforced the stigma, whereas that message hasn't got through to people yet that they can give it to somebody else. The point about the message on COVID-19 is that you can give it to somebody else in an incredibly easy way. If I get the coronavirus, I'll probably be okay. So I don't know whether you saw the Mel Brooks and Max Brooks' video, but Max Brooks stood outside on the patio of his dad's house, and his dad was behind the glass. But if I give it to him, he could give it to Carl Reiner, who could give it to Dick Van Dyke, and before I know it, I've wiped out a whole generation of comedic legends. And if I do that, I'll have wiped out an entire generation of American comedy genius. And Mel Brooks is standing behind the glass going, go home, go home. Just stay home. Do your part. Don't be a spreader. Right, Dad? I'm going. I'm going. Love you. So in a sense, that's the clarity of the message. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync... Things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Was the campaign effective, do you think? Well, well, the public reaction was, uh, yes, you've got my attention now. Now what, what am I going to do? It's a, a multi-messagey campaign. So it went out with a leaflet with the facts. 
all the big newspapers had big adverts, double page spread, and it was relentless. It was so big you couldn't avoid it. The effect on public health messages was proven to work. So in different African countries, say, where people did do an information campaign, people lived, and, and where they didn't do an information campaign, they died. When you look at today's campaign on coronavirus, there, there doesn't seem to have been anything quite equivalent to what you were doing. I think the difference these days is that the information is coming to people in lots of different ways. People are getting different information and they have to figure out which bit's new, which one's real, which one's not real. So a lot of the public have to do the work that a government should be doing for them. And the other side of that, of course, is that, you know, my uncle's cousin's barista in Seattle heard from his masseur's sister that apparently if you eat beetroot in the Vatican, then you'll be fine. So we've got this ridiculous kind of avalanche of misinformation, people from conspiracy theories through to kind of bonkers sort of natural homeopathy and all this kind of stuff, plus all sorts of the political soup of blame which is entirely binary these days, you know. So, so you've got a kind of terrible, terrible kind of um, iron curtain of misinformation, which you've got to get through in order to get your message out to people and be reliable. If you had to have anyone to front a campaign now, who, who might you choose? Uh, I'd choose Tom Hanks. Perhaps the most high-profile coronavirus patient yet, Tom Hanks announcing This overnight. morning, some good news from Tom Hanks. The star updated his fans, tweeting, two weeks after our first symptoms and we Everybody feel loves better. Tom Hanks. He's older, so he's in the target market for people who can uh, die. And he's actually had it. He can speak from experience. This is a message from the government's chief medical officer about coronavirus. It's important we all protect older people and those with existing health conditions from coronavirus. If you or anyone in your household has a high temperature or a new and continuous cough... Well, Chris Whitting is a chief medical officer. He's not a presenter. He may want to defer that to somebody like Matt from the BBC, one show. You need somebody that people are going to listen to. Go to nhs.uk to check your symptoms and follow the specialist medical advice. Only call NHS 111 if you can't get online or your symptoms worsen. I'm Nick, and we are the Belfast Respiratory Team. Well, I, th- I think for the, the uh, Irish one, the thing about that is a, is a specific message to give. Stay at home. I'm Susie. I'm a respiratory consultant, and I've been a doctor for 35 years. We are facing our greatest challenge, and we're frightened. Help us. Please stay at home. And they've chosen to use a sort of uh, your best friend's advice. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a difficult thing between scariness, but I think people are scared anyway. Uh, They've got an overload of information. They need it simplified, if it's possible. Would you like to work on a campaign? Of course I'd work on a campaign. Uh, I think everybody's working on that campaign right now. All the people staying at home are working on it. All the people who can't get on an aeroplane are working on it. They're, They're part of it. If you hear the call, off you go. So what do you think? Obviously, things changed in a big way on Monday night with the Boris Johnson address. Uh, What do you think about the public health messaging so far on COVID-19? It seems to me that the problem is that it's mixed. Do we say the government got it wrong? Or do we say that we don't understand this? 
we didn't know what to do. And there were different competing theories about what to do. So I think people are not understanding that actually what you do is you contain it by stopping the spread of it. And that happens by contact. So I think it's very mixed is the answer. Are you now clear as a result of government messaging? Well, I am. But then, you know, it's a peculiar thing, isn't it? You're not allowed to go out. But on the other hand, you can go out for essentials. Well, OK, that, that stops the frequency with which you go out, so therefore you meet less people. So that clearly cuts the contact. So that seems to me to message, cut the number of contacts you have with people. And doesn't that go back to the AIDS thing, really, in some ways, which is that actually your message has to be sometimes over clear in order for it to cut through at all. In other words, you have to say, only go out once, when what you really mean is try to go out as little as you possibly can. Yeah, no, I think that's right. But you have to get that underlying message, which is that the way this is transmitted is by multiple contacts with people. And people haven't got that. I mean, I went to the supermarket yesterday to get some eggs and whatever, and people were doing two things. They're piling their trolleys high. And I was standing back before I went to a shelf or whatever while somebody was at the shelf. And this woman looked at me like I was completely mad. And I said, well, don't worry, I'm just waiting till you finish. And you could see her thinking, What? And I didn't bother to explain. But that idea that you should stand apart from people, people still haven't internalised that. But the other thing that's important too is going back to the AIDS thing, was how important Lady Diana was in this. The Broderick Ward of the Middlesex Hospital is the only specially designed AIDS ward in Britain. She met the staff and the nine patients and shook hands with them all. HIV does not make people dangerous to know. So you can shake their hands and give them a hug. Heaven knows they need it. That, again, is about the message. And the message that she managed to get over was that it wasn't about us getting it off them. It was the danger of us giving an infection to them. Do you think the the messaging has been too complicated this time round compared with then? Well, there's two levels of complication, aren't there? One is that the message has actually changed. So there hasn't been a single consistent message since... I don't know when COVID-19 started in China, but are we talking probably six, seven, eight weeks ago, two months ago, something like that? So there has not been a consistency of message in the UK that said, right, this is coming, this is what we've got to do. But the other thing is that then at each point, the messaging hasn't been simple enough. So it seems to me the key message to get over is that contact with other people is dangerous for them. So you could infect them. And that's the thing that I think people haven't taken seriously. They think, I'm well, I'm fine. But actually, it appears that you can have a 14-day incubation period. So you may be completely asymptomatic, but you still might be infectious to other people. One of the things that you can see about the AIDS crisis is that the first intimations had started in the very early 80s but the actual campaign itself is is in the mid 80s and the science and and the understanding moved slowly towards a better understanding before they did that campaign with COVID-19 they've had nearly no time at all it's been really telescoped hasn't it so in some senses I'm not surprised the messaging has been such a whirly gig because actually every day there's new information and there's not the time to absorb it, process it and filter it into a single message. I think there are two things about that. One is that the science actually moved incredibly fast in relation to AIDS. 
And it'd be interesting to see how fast it moves in relation to COVID-19 in comparative terms. So the messaging inside the community, if you like, was very explicit and very urgent. And and the response was very quick. And that all came from the fact that actually no one else cared about us. And it was the pressure from that expertise and campaigning and the reality of the deaths that then eventually provoked that national campaign. Whereas here, you're right, it's a very much shorter thing. But I mean, that's also to do with the foreshortening of the news cycle, the communication cycle, social media and so on and so forth. That's one final question I'd like to ask. You can argue that AIDS was the last great pandemic until this one. It's hard to make a comparison, but do you feel, yeah, in a few months' time, we will be through this, we'll have learned something from it, we can be better as a result of it, I don't feel a sense of hopelessness. Or are you feeling rather wretched about it? I'm feeling a sense of hope. I felt a sense of hope, actually, all the way through the AIDS pandemic, because what has been remarkable was the extraordinary maturity of the response. Because people did tackle it. You know, it's still a pandemic in the world, but there are massive amounts of effort to try and tackle it. And so I feel in the same way that this will change us quite fundamentally, I think. Many of us are living 24-7 with our partners or our families. And actually, we don't normally do that. We're living together in ways that we're not used to, and that will do interesting things to our lives. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guests, advertising designer Malcolm Gaskin and Stonewall founder Simon Fanshaw. The producers were James Shield, Edward Drummond and Elizabeth Nakano. The executive producer is Leo Hornack and the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella, music by Breakmaster Cylinder. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. You can subscribe for free. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and more. In these uncertain times, you can access analysis, opinion and advice from the experts every day with a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. Visit thetimes.co.uk slash subscribe today to find out more. See you next time. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops, if we're stopping to get gas. 
You will be timed. <laughs> you will be <laughs> Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different. Bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 